Uh, so I don't know, Coach Sweeney, you and Kathleen are here, I'm assuming. Hey, brother, we want to welcome you all. Thank you so much for coming and bringing the team. We love you all so much and so grateful for you. Yeah. And um, I don't know, uh, you know, for us, uh, I know you know this, but man, uh, we love it when you all are perfect. <laughs> but we love it even more when you do it the right way, win or lose. So thank you for doing that and setting that standard. <clears throat> Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for the honor of being able to worship together. Thank you for these beautiful people. And uh, Lord, we just ask for the next few moments, you would speak clear to our hearts. And Lord, whether we're far from you or close to you, when we drive off this hill, just give us that one thing. Man, this is one thing that would make me more like Jesus. Just this one thing. This would make me more like Jesus. It may be a big deal. It may be a small deal. But just, just make that clear for us, I pray. And, and, and we'll consider this a win. In your name we pray. Amen. Oh, man, just returned from uh, Maine literally this morning. Um, so uh, I was supposed to fly in last night. Uh, our family was on vacation. And um, uh, we had an airline mess up uh, coming out of Bangor, Maine. And so uh, I, I was picked up at the airport this morning. And I don't want to throw any airline under the bus or anything, but it's, it's good to be united as a family. <laughs> um, and my wife is actually still at the airport waiting on our bags that I'm sure will come eventually. Um, but uh, so I had a guy pick me up from, from our church this morning from Charlotte Airport, and an hour and 35 minutes later, we're here. Yeah, it was like Elijah and the fiery chariot thing. I mean, it was, it was and I'm pretty sure I got saved again <laughs> several times in that whole trip. Uh, the reason I bring the whole main thing up to you was, um, I was we were together as a family, and I have a 22-year-old daughter, 20-year-old daughter, and a 16-year-old son. And um, so we're all together on this family thing, and uh, we had a great time. I mean, lobster and hiking and all this kind of stuff. And so I was with Lisa, my wife, and she's my best friend. She's amazing. She's funny. She thinks I'm funny. And uh, she gave me three wonderful children. She makes more money than I do. And so all these things are great, great things, you know, for me to have in her. And, um, and so we've been married for 32 years, and, uh, and, and it's, been, it's wonderful. But I don't want to paint this unrealistic picture because part of what I discovered on this trip to Maine was there's this big mountain of a problem in our home, and I just feel I need to share it to get it out, and it's basically this, one of the most difficult parts of our marriage is trying to figure out what we're going to watch on Netflix <laughs> because we have two entirely different ideas of what would be entertaining on Netflix. And so Lisa's very sensitive to violence and suspense, and she feels whatever's going on in the show. No matter what we're watching, she'll feel that. And so I've watched Lisa feel emotions toward a cartoon. You know, we watch a cartoon, she's over there crying. And I said, honey, this isn't real. Like Fox and the Hound, get a box of Kleenexes. She's going to be gone. And so, and so guaranteed, I, on the other hand, I love violence and murder and mayhem because I'm a pastor and it just feels like I'm at work, you know, and that's <laughs> kind of how I roll. And so... And so I love that. And so Lisa, she loves documentaries. I would rather stab myself with a butter knife than watch a documentary. She watched a documentary on, on tomatoes. And then she wanted to talk about it with me and my son Thomas. And we're like, honey, as long as there's ketchup, the world's going to be fine. You know, we don't really care about that. But one of the shows that we would strike out of something we could watch together is this show called Mad Men. Anybody ever seen Mad Men before? It used to be on uh, like the normal networks and now it's on 
on, um, on Netflix. Now, here's, here's the thing. When I say stuff like this, I'm not recommending this show to your family. Don't go watch it and think, oh, pastor said, don't do that, okay? You, you pick it out for yourself. You're growing up. You figure it out for yourself. Don't say I'm recommending it because I'm not recommending it, although it's a great show. So um, Mad Men is a show about this marketing engine uh, on Madison Avenue. And the title is basically trying to play off that. And the main character of the show is this dude called Don Draper. Don Draper is the man that everybody wants to be. I mean, he's got the freshest suit. He's got, the, he's got hair. <laughs> you know, that, that's a plus. Uh, he's got this rugged, good looks, you know, kind of thing. He's got an amazing job. He's got an amazing house, uh, amazing car. Literally, the dude has a golden retriever and two kids. I mean, this is the man that everybody sort of wants to be when you watch this show as it opens up. But then a few shows into this first season, they bring this apprentice in who basically is to learn from one of the best salesmen uh, on Madison Avenue. And so they bring her in, and so he starts trying to teach her. She's trying to learn everything and all these kinds of stuff about how to sell products. And then she's sitting there taking notes, and she's basically pushing on saying, hey, you know, what do we do to sell the product? How do we make sure we sell good products? And Draper says something like this. People tell you who they are, but we ignore them because we want them to be who we want them to be. All of marketing is to get people to buy what they don't need so we can make a lot of money. As the show plays out, we discover that Draper isn't as put together as we think he is. The dude's an alcoholic off the chart. He's, he, he smokes like a smokestack all the time. Uh, he's a, he, he has all kinds of affairs halfway into the season. And, and again, I was watching this for sermon research. But halfway into the season... <laughs> halfway into the season, you know, uh, he, he's, he's like had, he, he jumped in a lot of beds halfway into the season, you know, and so, uh, and in fact, the, his whole life is basically this facade. His entire life is this complex marketing job. It's all a sales job, and, and, and he's had, he's got a family upbringing that's kind of whacked, and nobody really knows what that is. He's trying to hide that, and here's the thing. Everybody around him hates him, but they won't do it to his face. It's always behind his back. And to his face, they say, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And a realization is eventually made for Draper that he is actually totally alone. And his entire life is built on one empty promise after another. His entire life has been this huge ad campaign and none of it real. So let's see if I can bring this down into our lives. If you would take a moment and think on one of the greatest regrets of your life, maybe even the top five, I would bet it began with some kind of empty sales pitch. You see what you think about it, just, just for a moment. One of those empty sales pitches that said, hey, if you'll do this, you'll be happy. You do this, you'll be satisfied. You do this, you'll be successful, whatever it is. Some empty sales pitch that would tell you how you feel about your body or empty sales pitch that would tell you how you feel about yourself sexually or about your feelings toward money or relationship with friends or marriages or relationships with, with our children. And I think that one of the things that unites all of humanity is we're all trying to answer the same basic three questions. I think all of us, Christian, non-Christian, believers, unbelievers, ultimately how we live our lives all is a response to these same basic questions. Most of us wake up and asking the same question, at least for a stage of our lives, and trying to find answers day after day. And here's the three questions I would suggest we're trying to figure out. Who am I? What am I worth, and why in the world am I here? 
Now, maybe he didn't chart him out like that. Maybe it wasn't even a conscious thing. Maybe it was a subconscious thing. But I know that these three questions drive all of us, no matter what our background is. Who am I? What am I worth? What am I good for? And why am I here? And as we've learned from our friend Don Draper, there are this, this mess of brilliant people that have opinions about all those questions for our lives. And they all want us to buy what they're selling. <laughs> to be who they want us to be. And to do what we want them to do. You know, I can see this in, in, in my children. So when our kids were small, we put them in soccer. Because my wife's a physician. She's afraid she'd get hurt, they'd get hurt in football. So we had to play soccer. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> not bitter. So, um, the, and that soccer's fine, but we wanted all our kids to kind of be, uh, kind of be athletic, and because we, we all, as parents, we all are writing on the blank pages of our children. We're all doing that. And so we parents are trying to make sure that only good things get written on the pages of our kids, and so our kids played soccer. And like most parents, we tried to bribe our kids to be good athletically, you know. <laughs> we, we tried to say something like, hey, if you score a goal, I'll take you out to, for ice cream, you know, when, if you score a goal. Well, our middle child is like, she's really smart, but it's a good thing because she's not real athletic, but she's really smart. And so she really wasn't interested in playing soccer. She was out there because her parents forced her to be out there. And um, so the whole play would be going on around her. And Sarah's out there looking like the four-leaf clovers. She's in the middle of the field doing like that. It was so embarrassing. I would cheer for other people's kids, you know, because I didn't want them to know that that one was mine. I mean, they're passing, running, high-fiving, and my kid's looking for four-leaf clover, you know. And so, but no kidding, this kid scored a goal that season. It was in her own goal. <laughs> and she still wanted me to take her out for ice cream, which, which I did. But my, I, children are this blank page waiting to be written, written on. In fact, we're all kind of this blank page, which leads to the question, who gets to write on our pages who gets to tell us how we feel about who we are, what our worth is, whether we have any value, why we're here? See, we all buy a sales pitch promising to answer these questions, and sometimes the sales pitch comes from a family of origin. They tell us who we are and what we're worth and why we're here. Sometimes it comes from an event in our lives. Maybe sometimes it comes from something that made us feel victimized. Sometimes it's a success. That's who we are. That must be who we are. Maybe live out what's written on our pages of our lives, and we're all trying to live that out, attempting to overcome what's been written. So let me ask you this question. What if it was possible to know, to truly know and believe without equivocation what God's written on your page? Let me ask it another way. If you knew, believed, and lived out what God says is absolutely without question true about you, would it change anything? You probably remember or are familiar with all the stories of Jesus as a baby. So you had Mary and Joseph, you had the baby, the manger, the angels, the wise men. And then basically for 30 years, you don't hear much out of Jesus at all. The baby thing, you hear a little bit at 12 years old, but then you don't hear much out of Jesus for 30 years. And then 30 years later, he comes back onto the scene. And what I want to tell you is the first thing that happens when he comes back on the scene at 30 years old. So a guy named John, who ends up as Jesus' cousin, was teaching. And John was a weird one. He wore animal skins, ate bugs. I mean, this is all in the Bible. You should read your Bible. It's amazing. And so he's, he's teaching the wilderness, and he's teaching. 
But the message John the Baptist is sharing is that God's getting ready to do something amazing in the world. He's getting ready to redeem the world. And God is preparing a way to allow all of humanity to reconnect to him. To rethink how we think about everything. While John's preaching this message, Jesus comes forward for the first time now as an adult. And he goes up to John and says, hey John, I want to be baptized. And this is where we pick up the story, Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, dunked into the water, pulled back up, he went out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And immediately after Jesus is baptized, just so we're clear, just in case you're not fully aware, Jesus will take on the toughest mission in human history. He gives his life for people who really don't even care he's giving his life. He, he, he ends up sacrificing himself for a world that ultimately will reject the sacrifice he's making. Jesus will take a moment, and he'll look a woman in the face who's been caught in this adulterous thing, and when all the world says she should be punished for that, Jesus says, I'm not going to condemn you. He'll take blind people and give them sight, and people who can't walk, and let them walk, and people carrying a disease that's caused them to be ostracized in society, and he'll heal them up, and he even brings dead people back to life. And he'll speak this entire time of this other kind of love. And so after three years of speaking to tens of thousands of people, only this handful of people will say, I actually buy what you're saying. I actually believe in you. And so this day that he's in the baptism and he comes out, before he heads into that ministry, before he heads into this toughest mission in human history, God the Father calls a timeout. He comes up out of the water, and I always think God the Father sounds like James Earl Jones. I don't know why, but that's kind of where I do. I don't think it's Justin Bieber. <laughs> I think it's more James Earl Jones. And so I think God, he comes out of the Father, and God, God gets the world's attention. And he basically says, I have something to say before the greatest act of love in human history goes down. And he looks his boy in the, in the face so everybody can hear. And God answers the questions every human being is asking. Who am I? You're my son. What am I worth? A uh, heck of a whole lot because I love you. Why am I here? You make me happy. You please me. That's why you're here. And so I was thinking how awesome it would be to have that kind of clarity in our lives without all the noise and all the other Don Drapers of the world selling us something. Imagine just before you get ready to call it quits. Imagine just before you get ready to compromise a value that you hold or right before you get ready to cross a line that's going to change your life. Imagine God providing this kind of clarity. Time out, Tom. You're my child. You're my, you're my kid, and I am crazy nuts in love with you. That's what you're worth, and you bring me pleasure. So imagine those of you that are married, 
y'all remember in the, hanging out in that little room like off the sanctuary if you got married at a church? I, I, like the men, we'd go in this little room with a study and the pastor usually. I'm assuming you women do the same thing. I don't know. But you're over there and, uh, and imagine like you're thinking, okay, this is it. This is the moment, right? I mean, I can hit the door if I need to, and I can be gone. And at that point, I was praying, man, I hope Lisa doesn't wake up and realize what a big mistake she's making. And thankfully, you know, she stays. But you think, man, I'm not sure this is right. Can you imagine, like, the church roof rolling back and James Earl Jones speaking? <laughs> hey, you're my child. And I love you. And you please me. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. How about you parents? Y'all remember when you first got one of them? Kids? No, man, it was just, ours, man, was like pointed head and blue, looked like a smurf. I mean, it was a bad scenario at first. This was the first one, too. And so, you know, she came out. And I was like, man, Lisa, does she get cuter? I mean, what, what's going on with this? I mean, no kidding. That was just another story. But anyway... I remember that we had family come and stay with us for a week or so, you know, to help us figure everything out. And then I remember that the family left, and I remember us closing the door, and Lisa and I looking at each other and crying. And I remember asking her, I was like, "Hun, you, you, you know what to do, right? Because I don't really have a clue what, what I should do with this now. I don't know what, what we're supposed to do. And then you all know that they get older. And they become adults, teenagers and adults, and then you start having problems and situations that, we can't fix, we don't know how to fix, and we can't protect them from. Can you imagine the roof of your house rolling back? And James Earl speaking, because now we're on a first name basis, and James Earl Jones speaking. Hey, Tom and Lisa, you're my, you're my kids. You're my children, and I love you. I'm well pleased with you. Every day, I'm going to be with you in this battle. What if you're single, going through that wonderful, terrible world of dating and all the questions that surround that practice in our culture? Swipe left, swipe right. I don't even know what that means, but I mean, now you got to deal with that. You got the evaluation and the risk, and if you break up, then you got all the social media withdrawal. It's a horrible situation. The desire to find that perfect person to do life with, whatever God has in mind for this part of you. You have these doubts. Imagine the roof of your car being rolled back and a voice from heaven says, hey, you're my child. And I love you. And you bring me pleasure. Every day I'm going to be with you. How about those of us who've paid a great many visits to hospitals for someone we love? Mom, dad, grandma, brother, sister. All the fears of being in that environment terrible reality that our bodies remind us of that we ultimately are not in control imagine the roof of the hospital a voice from heaven saying you're my child I love you I'm well pleased with you every day I'll be with you phone reception was horrible in the mountains of Maine so we stumble out of the mountains and stuck in an airport last night and I pull up the phone and hear about the shootings taking place across the country. Makes you not want to go to Walmart or go out on town. But there's a voice from heaven. 
You're my child. I love you. I'm well pleased. I'm going to be with you. You see, immediately following this moment for Jesus, he heads deeper into his personal wilderness, and he'll be attacked from every side. I mean, Satan will try to write on Jesus' page, and he will push and pull on what God has just written on his page. And we've all been at that exact same place because our greatest shame or greatest regret in this life started with this question, can I really trust God or not? And it's exactly what Jesus had to face in that wilderness. Maybe I should take care of me. Maybe I should control this. Maybe I am unlovable. Maybe I need to do this to be lovable. Maybe God isn't all he's cracked up to be. Maybe I can't trust him. Maybe God's plan is not as good as my plan. So it made me wonder how many times over the next three years of Jesus' life, the walk on the water business, water and the wine at the wedding. Remember when he cast the demon into the herd of pigs? When he's arrested, when the mob pushed him around him and he had to sneak away. And then the Via Della Rosa thing, you know, where he's carrying the cross and the people mocking and yelling. How many times in Jesus' life, the next three years, do you think Jesus went back to that river where his father wrote on a blank page, you're my child. I love you. Uh, you, you bring pleasure to me. You, you know what I'm discovering? See if you agree with this. I would suggest that identity, worth, and purpose drive everything about who we are. Everything about who you are as a man or woman, identity, worth, and purpose, drive it all. These are the components that motivate our lives. These are the question producers constantly crafting who we are, identity, worth, and purpose. And they shape our relationships, they shape our families, they shape our integrity. So let me ask you a more personal question. What do you think Jesus sees in you? Because however we answer that question, that is our identity. So if you think Jesus sees in you something that is less than, something that will never be good enough, something that is beyond hope, that's part of something you have to perform. That's, that's your identity. What do you think Jesus feels about you? Because however we answer that question kind of points to what we feel we're worth. Jesus thinks I'm a cup of old dirty water. I don't think he has much use for me at all. Jesus thinks that what I did back then taints the way he feels about me now. What do you think, how do you think Jesus can use you? Because however you answer that question, that has to do with your purpose. Trying to perform, trying to be perfect. Or is it about trying to Bring God pleasure with this one and only life. So the thing this passage has kind of been landing me on is really simple. I write in my journal, Tom, do you know who you are? <laughs> I'm 52 years old. Tom, do you know who you are? Do you know what's written on your page and who's doing the writing? Because whether you know God or not, this is what God believes about you. You're God's child. He says it from cover to cover in the book. Everywhere you see it, he says it. Everywhere you read, you're my child. You're my child. 
What are you worth? Apparently, God is crazy nuts in love with us. And it's not because we got all dressed up and came to church that he loves us. He actually loved us before we even thought about doing that. Because scripture says, while we were still jacked up, that's a loose translation, that God still loved us. Why are you here? I think we're here to bring, because we bring God pleasure. I think that's why we, we're still here. And so we spend our lives. I'm God's child. He loves me. And I'm here to bring him pleasure. That's a pretty good life. Jesus, thank you for these good folks. Thank you for the high honor of being able to be in this room with them. Look at them, Lord. They're so beautiful. All of us doing our best to handle the Don Drapers in the world. All of us trying to figure out this life we lead, trying to figure out who we are, what we're worth, and why we're here. And Lord, the most aha moment for me in this whole passage was to finally understand that's exactly what you had to settle to and what it must have meant to you to hear God the Father say this is my son and I love him and in him I'm well pleased and Lord I pray as we all now take and leave this place that one little thing to make us more like Jesus I pray you'd help us to settle it down real clear right now I'm God's child he loves me He's pleased with me. In your name.